I think the crime of the US that we kind of require people to have earned their way into wellness. And I think that's, that's really ugly. And I think it doesn't serve people. And we've made living a calm, comfortable life, a luxury. And so I, I love that idea that you know, and I hate it at the same time, right? <laughs> that leaving the U.S. <laughs> is is a path to wellness, right? And it's kind of connected to the point I make in the book that you know, leaving the U.S. is often the only way that African Americans have been able to feel American. Something's wrong with that. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, the award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, a business strategist and consultant from Atlanta, living and thriving in Valencia, Spain. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish the Foreign. I am Christine. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I know you're going to really enjoy this episode. A little bit before we get into this episode, I just think it's really important for all of you who enjoy my podcast and content creators at large, okay? Especially women content creators and Black women content creators, it is so important that you support content creators, regardless if you're supporting me or someone else. And the reason why I want to bring this up is that this episode that you're going to hear was actually supposed to launch like three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And I had so much drama on the back end, not anything to do with my lovely guests. My guest is lovely. But specifically with a podcast company who, I mean, you guys can, I mean, if you follow me on Twitter, you probably know the whole drama because I had to get a little turnt on Twitter. But specifically with podcast companies and entities and sometimes even people who discount small creators, right? People who discount and basically disregard smaller or niche creators because I don't know. They think that we don't matter and things like that. That's why it's so important that our audience supports us because to bring this season, season five to you all, I've already put in a hundred hours of work. Okay. And then I had this whole drama in the background that to be honest made me want to scrap the entire season and I had to be talked off the ledge by multiple people. And I say that not as a woe is me, but just as a reality, right? You enjoy this podcast. You enjoy a lot of other people's podcasts, a lot of other people's content. And y'all really don't know the blood, sweat, tears, and cursing that goes in to create something like this for all of y'all, which, especially in podcasting, is free. <laughs> like, that's what it is. I just really, really really want to bring to your attention that small creators, niche creators like myself, and you might think, well, Christine, you're doing quite well. You do this. You got this award. I always see you doing something. Yeah, but 
I'd still a solo and indie podcast and I'd still just me. And there's still a lot of nonsense that goes on in the background. Um, whether it be with sponsors lowballing you, uh, journalists sometimes acting weird or podcast companies. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. And I think y'all all know this is not my main gig. So it's a lot of work. And I do say that because I think it's important for y'all to know the real deal. But not just for me, but for all content creators, especially Black women content creators. Because people really be trying us. And it's just like very fascinating. It's It's a very fascinating experience. So I just wanted to say that to all of y'all. Regardless if you choose to support me monetarily or if you're sharing the podcast, things like that, I really want y'all to think about that. Think about all the creators that you enjoy, all the creators that you can't wait to watch on TikTok or Instagram or YouTube or listen to their podcast. Please support them in a tangible way. Please support them in a tangible way. Because just like we don't know what y'all going through, Y'all really don't know what these content creators are going through and how they're making it happen for y'all every week or every day or whatever their schedule is. So just support Black women content creators. Just do it. There's really no excuse. There just isn't. Just support the people that you enjoy, okay? Because let me tell you, I was about to burn everything down to the ground. I was about to burn everything down to the ground, but I didn't. All right. With that being said, let's get into some of these announcements. Please remember that the Flourish in the Foreign Patreon will be coming to an end at the end of 2023. So please be sure to become a monthly supporter at Buy Me a Coffee. That's buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign, where you'll find benefits like the Flourish in the Foreign book club, author chats, monthly chats with me, invitations to recording sessions, and much more. A friendly reminder to everyone, I will be doing another Ask Me Anything episode at the end of this season, so be sure to please submit your questions via the link in the description of this episode. All right. On to the episode. Season 5, Episode 3. Today's episode is an author chat with Tamara J. Walker, who is the author of the incredible book Beyond the Shores, A History of African Americans Abroad. Originally, way back in 2020, I wanted to launch this podcast with a historian talking about Black migration in a historical context. Now, we've been able to delve into this subject a bit with some of my past guests, most notably with Dr. Nafisa Allen. Be sure to check out her episode, season two, episode two. And now my true nerdy girl dream has finally come true with Tamara J. Walker. Tamara is a historian, writer, and nonprofit founder with wide-ranging interests. As an academic, her scholarship focuses on interrelated thematic areas, the history of slavery and freedom in Latin America, the process of racial formation in the region, 
and the ways in which gender shapes the experience of enslavement and racialization. Tamara's scholarship is also inspired by the concern of recovering the subjectivities of enslaved and free people of African descent who rarely had direct access to writing and whose voices were heavily mediated when they did appear on record. This is something that I resonate deeply with and why I feel so strongly about Flourish in the Foreign being a platform to showcase the voices and stories of Black women in their own voice, telling their own stories. Now, everyone pause the podcast right now and order Beyond the Shores right now and then come back and listen to this episode. I promise you, this is a book that you will not only want to read, but to discuss in depth. It is such an amazing, amazing book. The stories, the history, I really, really enjoyed not only the book, but this conversation. But I'll let Tamara tell you all about it. Tamara, thank you so much for joining me today, but also for writing this book. Like, thank you for writing this book. I have to say, this book made me feel so affirmed in my own experience abroad. At this point, I've had the podcast for three years. I've interviewed over 100 women at this point, and I feel like this book is what I always wanted, really, truly. When I started the podcast, I always tell people, I started because when I wanted to move abroad, when I was like 18, 20 years old, I didn't have these concrete stories. And there's something about having concrete stories, not as a representation, like someone can do it, but what they went through that changes everything. So first and foremost, just Thank you. Thank you for being a wonderful and meticulous historian. Thank you for writing a book that I think is very palatable for so many people, even people who are not into history. And thank you so much for sharing your own uh, story, your family story, your personal story. I just think that this book is so, so wonderful. So I would love to start the discussion uh, in your prologue. There's something that you incorporated here that I think is a really great way to start our, off our discussion. You refer to Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons. And in that book, she references Richard Wright's memoir. And he's talking about, obviously, his, his life, but also the migration from Mississippi to Chicago. And particularly The Warmth of Other Sons is the title of her book, but it came from this one passage from Richard Wright in reference to moving to Chicago and said that it stemmed from a powerful need to respond to the warmth of other sons and perhaps to bloom. We must start there because, you know, the name of the podcast is Flourish in the Foreign, right? So we're, we're, we're trying to flourish abroad. I would love to start there as a concept for the book of seeking out other sons to possibly bloom. Thank you so much for having me and for saying such nice things about the book. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. Yeah, I always loved, first of all, Isabel Workerson's book and the title of it. And it just felt like a really 
beautiful way to pay homage to the book and to kind of situate my book in conversation with the story of the Great Migration, because I see the story of this century of African Americans going abroad as being part of the story of the Great Migration, or at least connected to it. And so I, I started with that passage because, you know, for people who talk about going abroad and who've experienced going abroad, Richard Wright is such an important touchstone. And so for him to have given voice to this experience of moving from the South to the North, and then to also have given voice to the experience of leaving the United States, it just felt like such a perfect encapsulation of that, that story. And I think the fact that he made that point about the, about moving to the North meant that he was he had kind of reached the limit of the possibilities to, to bloom in the North. And so he ended up needing to experience life on other shores. And the title of my book also comes from a Richard White quote, where he talks about the need to experience life on other shores in order to, to really live as a human being. What I find really amazing about this book is that the, the people you profile have these inspirational, maybe even aspirational aspects of their journeys, but it is not without the realities of their time and of course race. And I love this notion of going abroad and blooming, but I also find, and I think that you've exemplified it in so many of these stories, is that blooming is relative and perhaps seasonal as well. After George Floyd, of course, there was a lot of interest, renewed interest in going abroad, almost a bit of romanticization of it, a lot of escapism. And I think although some of uh, the people you profiled definitely had some vein of escapism, perhaps, the romanticized notions, I think, were... mm, kept to a minimum. I think that's what I really enjoyed about your book is that there's just this balance and also how romantic of a life can it be when it's really just Black people wanting to be left alone and unbothered. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'll take a step back and describe the book as a whole for your listeners who haven't read it yet. So I structure the narrative chapters of the book around a century of people on the move starting in the 1920s and continuing to the present day. And with each chapter, I focus on a decade of the 20th and 21st century and either a person or a pair of people and a location or a pair of locations that reflect what was happening in the United States at a given point in time that was making it necessary for many African-Americans to leave the country. And then I also look at what was happening in other parts of the world that made those places beckon to African-Americans or be perceived as welcoming to African-Americans. So I've got a chapter on Paris in the 1920s, which I think is an easy place to open with because people are largely familiar with the experiences of people like Josephine Baker and James Baldwin and the contemporaries who had gone for mostly reasons related to the entertainment industry to Paris, where they had opportunities to perform on stages and in theaters around the city. And so I follow someone named Florence Mills in that chapter because she was often compared to Josephine Baker, sometimes favorably, sometimes unfavorably. And her experience was 
one that I think highlights the the tragedy at the center of my book, because like you said earlier, this is not just a book about the romance and the adventure of travel. It's also a story about the ways in which African-Americans have struggled to make a life and community for themselves in the United States and had real challenges in the way of doing so. And their ability to live as full human beings, multidimensional human beings has always run into different obstacles from Jim Crow to the Great Depression to the more recent events of, of 2020 and beyond. So that's the, the kind of overall context for the book. I want to discuss the Negro comrades, which I have to say were my favorite profile in your book. I think it's because I actually had already seen a documentary about Black people in Russia back in 2020. And so I was already aware of it. But I think that this profile really showcased in such uh, detail the political implications of going abroad, which I think currently people are just like, I'm going to go abroad. And there's no political implications and I'm not beholden to political implicate uh, the local political implications or the U.S. implications. So I'm wondering in your research for the Negro comrades, what about those stories did you feel like you needed to bring into the book? As you mentioned, I look at different people in different chapters. And in the chapter on the 1930s, I ended up looking at two different people, this pair of agronomists who went to the Soviet Union in the 1930s and were part of a larger group. There were about 14 families in total. Many of the men who were part of this collective had studied at Tuskegee University and had skills that were of tremendous value during the Great Depression in the United States. But because they were Black, they were not seen as resources for their skills and they did not have opportunities to do the work that they had trained so long and so hard for. And so Oliver Golden and Joseph Rowan, the two men that I talked about in this chapter, had both been either working as Pullman porters or in Rowan's case, been planning to work as a Pullman porter before this opportunity to work in the cotton industry in Uzbekistan came along. And Oliver Golden was tasked to lead this group of agronomists to the Soviet Union. And it's an interesting story because the men have such different experiences. From the very beginning, Oliver Golden had already spent time in the Soviet Union. He had gone to a school in Moscow that had been founded for various people from various parts of the world to learn more about communism and to take some of the lessons of communism back to their home countries. And he was there because from the perspective of the Soviet Union, African-Americans were colonized people in the same way that the Chinese were and other populations around the world were, but colonized people in their own country instead of being colonized by foreign powers. And so he had already been familiar with the Soviet Union, been familiar with the communist cause and was tasked with recruiting these people who had never set foot in the Soviet Union and didn't think much about communism. And so he looked to his mentor, George Washington Carver, to kind of help lead the charge of moving with this group to Moscow and eventually to Uzbekistan. And he ended up running into trouble from the very beginning because George Washington Carver was committed most of all to staying in the United States and setting an example for African-Americans and setting an example within the United States of what was possible if African-Americans were given opportunities to 
thrive and showcase their talents and serve their country. And so there was an interesting back and forth between Oliver Golden and George Washington Carver about this project. And Oliver Golden really saw George Washington Carver as having a potential to kind of serve as a model for what was possible for African-Americans if they took their talents elsewhere. But long story short, he doesn't end up recruiting his mentor, but he does get introduced to a wider network of agronomists, including Joseph Rowan, who ends up being convinced to go. And I picked Joseph Rowan because he was someone who had spent most of his life in Virginia, hadn't really wanted to leave his country, much less his state, but ends up kind of being forced by circumstance to do so because he's not given an opportunity to work in his chosen profession. He's not interested in communism. He's really just interested in making a life for himself. He's married to a woman named Sadie, who's a teacher. And so he's also not clear on what she'll do with her time while she's in the Soviet Union. But they end up deciding ultimately to pick up and and move to the Soviet Union. And so I wanted to kind of profile two different people with two different kind of reasons for setting out one more political, the other one more personal and practical. Um, and I wanted to showcase kind of the ambivalence that surrounded some of these decisions to leave, or at least the anxiety and fear that surrounded some of those decisions to leave. And I think Joseph Rowan and his wife, Sadie, embodied that ambivalence and just that unfamiliarity with the decision and the way that Oliver Golden was much more on board with the project. The other reason I chose two of them is because they had very different outcomes in the end. Oliver Golden ends up staying and living out his days in the Soviet Union. They spend all these years in Uzbekistan as part of this cotton cooperative that they end up leading. But eventually Golden goes to Moscow and ends up making his life there, having a child there. His daughter ends up having a daughter, a woman named Yelena Kanga, who I think might have been featured in the documentary that you mentioned having seen. Mm-hmm. But Joseph Rowan and his wife, Sadie, end up eventually going back to Virginia. And while back in Virginia, the best he's able to do professionally is get a job as a teacher at a local high school, whereas Oliver Golden ends up having much more professional success. But they also end up having to reckon with the politics of their their time and that Oliver Golden ends up living through the Stalinist purges in Russia and Joseph Rowan has to be thrust back into the world of Jim Crow in the United States. So they both had really complicated experiences, both while in the Soviet Union and in the years that followed this initial decision to, to go to the Soviet Union. And so I wanted to just showcase that kind of range of experiences, even just through the lens of these two individuals. I should also mention about the chapter on Uzbekistan is that African-Americans were being used by the Soviet Union kind of as a cudgel against the United States. And you touched on that in terms of the way that the Soviet Union was critiquing the United States at the time. This is the beginning of the Cold War era where the Soviet Union is kind of seeing the ways in which the United States is holding itself up as a banner of democracy. And that will continue to be true over the course of World War II and also seeing the hypocrisy of that positioning because of how the United States is treating African-Americans and Mexican populations and indigenous populations. And meanwhile, still insisting that its way of governing and its very kind of existence is a critique of the Soviet Union and a critique of communism. And so I think what that means for African-Americans is that they're kind of caught between two different states with ambitions that 
don't have much to do with African-Americans themselves as individuals. They see them as political pawns. The Soviet Union certainly saw them that way. At the same time, it still meant that it was possible for African-Americans to carve out opportunity and possibility and a sense of humanity for themselves. And they they knew what was going on, right? They, they knew what was up. They weren't naive to these political kind of issues and, and dynamics. And so it's not that they were ever unaware that they were being used as cudgels, but they were trying to, you know, use these, these countries as well, right, to create spaces for themselves and for their families to have a bit of peace. And I think that's true across the, the narrative of the book in different places and for different individuals. This juxtaposition of what these people were dealing with in Black America as we progress from decade to decade, and what their experience was as other in another country. Mm -hmm. And what was really fascinating is the perception of America in these other countries. From in France, the 1920s, where Black Americans were the exotic and had certain cachet. However, Martinicans and other Caribbeans or West Africans, not so much. Even Kim Bass's experience in Japan, I found that to be, I feel like that is really one of the most um, interesting things about this book or even Richard Wright's experience in Argentina, which I, I read that profile and I wasn't surprised and I also, I, I think I lacked a little bit of sympathy for that kind of experience, which I think might come from hindsight. And I also think as a Black American, kind of this notion of we should always know better. We should always have this kind of guard up. And unfortunately, as we go abroad, I think one of the things is that what is uh, appealing to go to a place maybe Argentina or France is to be unburdened. And to not have to uh, always have your guard up. The Richard Wright chapter is a little different because, you know, what I wanted to do with that chapter is take a familiar person outside of the context that we tend to associate him with. We tend, when we think of Richard Wright, to think of Paris. And I follow him to Argentina in part to kind of play with the idea of Paris since Buenos Aires was considered the Paris of the Americas. It still has that nickname. and in many ways, it looks a lot like Paris in terms of the ways the streets are organized and the construction of the buildings. It's got the same houseman style architecture. So there's lots of reasons that the two cities are compared to one another. And Buenos Aires is a city that kind of celebrates its European heritage, not just in terms of the built environment, but in terms of the population itself because of this history of European immigration. And so what does it mean to put Richard Wright in this other Paris and why is he there in the first place? And the reason he's there is both because he is filming a movie, he's filming Native Son, but the reason he's there is because he can't film it in Paris. This is in the post-World War II era where countries that are receiving funding from the United States through the Marshall Plan are worried about alienating the United States by appearing to criticize it in any way. And so France was worried that in allowing a film like Native Son to be filmed in France, that it would be perceived as critical of the United States because Native Son is critical of racism in the United States. But more than anything, it's interested in the experience of Bigger Thomas and the community that he forms part of in Chicago. But it meant that there were few places in the world that would have been hospitable to filming 
a story like Native Son. And it happens that a French director and a Uruguayan producer come together and approach Richard Wright about filming the movie there in Buenos Aires. And so that's the reason that he's there. It's not this kind of arbitrary decision on his part to go there. It's this decision that is kind of forced upon him. I mean, he doesn't have to make the movie, but he wants to make the movie and he ends up starring in the movie. And those are the circumstances that lead him there. And it's a really complicated time in his life. There are things that happen and I'll let folks read the chapter to kind of find out more, but there are things that happen while he's there that make him feel unsettled, unmoored, and unappreciated as a writer and a filmmaker and an artist and person overall. And it's set against this particular moment in Argentinian history that he happens to have stumbled into. And so it makes for a really complicated context for him. Beyond being a Black man in South America is him being in this place that is experiencing the early stages of a dictatorship. And so his movements are being heavily monitored, both because of the nature of the Argentine dictatorship, but also because of the nature of Argentina's relationships with the U.S. It's not a Marshall Plan country, but it's still reliant in some ways on the U.S. And so it allows the FBI and U.S. attaches to meddle a bit in Richard Wright's time there and scrutinize him and it adds to Wright's feeling of being watched and a sense of paranoia while he's there. And so, you know, he's, he's black every day. He's in Argentina, but he's also got these other things that are going on in his life and in his work that add to the complexity and the challenges of his experience there. The other thing I kind of point out, and you touched on it, is that wherever the people that I write about in the book go, there are often other black populations or other subordinated populations. And in Argentina, there is a long history of one African slavery and anti-black racism. And there is a black population that is, is connected to the world of filmmaking, the world of theater, television, the entertainment industry. And some of those individuals are cast in this movie where they're meant to play people on the south side of Chicago, despite not being in Chicago, not speaking English and not being American. And so one of the things I write about in that chapter is, you know, what that dynamic is like for Richard Wright to encounter this world of Afro-Argentines and for these Afro-Argentines to encounter someone like Richard Wright and to see how differently his experience is playing out than their own experience as people who had been born and raised and whose ancestors had toiled in this country. And so there's an interesting juxtaposition that happens there. And I, I tease that out in different chapters following different individuals along the way. You also mentioned Kim Bass and his chapter was really interesting for me to, to research and to write. I had an opportunity to interview Kim Bass who I previously knew as the writer of the TV show, Sister, Sister. I didn't know that he had this other kind of backstory that involved spending five years in Tokyo and teaching English, but also being on television and working at Tokyo Disney. He just had a really cool life. And part of what I found to be really kind of cool about his story was that unlike so many of the people I write about in the 1920s and the 1930s who were fleeing U.S. racism and pursuing opportunities that would not have been available to them in the U.S. for various reasons, He's someone who wasn't really fleeing anything. He was pursuing a life of kind of pleasure, 
just a chance to discover himself, to pursue his passions, to try out new things, to kind of see where life took him. He had ambitions. He wanted to, from a very young age, go to Hollywood, make movies. And that's ultimately what he has done with his life. And during his time in Tokyo, he was obviously moving towards that goal. But it just struck me as just a really good time. Like he, yeah, just to use your word, he he was really kind of unbothered in his day-to-day life. He worked really hard, you know, teaching English. And he is a very disciplined person. And so he committed to studying Japanese even before he moved to Tokyo. He was just so devoted to the pursuit of mastering this really difficult language. And he also was really invested in learning and studying Taekwondo. So he was not a lazy person. He was not a dilettante, but he was someone who just got to like have a really fun life in his early to mid twenties. And I wanted to capture that too. Right. And recognize that it still made for a complicated experience. He was still a black man in Japan during a time when there weren't very many black people in Japan. And by and large, the black people who were in Japan were GIs and people connected to the US military. And that made for a really complicated dynamic in Japan in terms of the kind of anti-imperial spirit within Japan towards the US. So GIs, whether they were black or white, kind of represented a US imperial presence in Japan. But black GIs also represented something in Japan. And Kim Bass being black was often mistaken for a GI and subjected to a lot of harsh, unwelcoming treatment. But because he was someone who spoke Japanese fluently and was a school teacher and later an actor, he got to eventually sidestep some of those forms of, of mistreatment and some of the, the stereotypes that people had about him. But he was also in Japan during a time when the when Michael Jackson was really popular, when U.S. music was just taking the world by storm, including Japan and musical performers were making their way to and from Japan. So the 80s were just a really interesting time. And I wanted to capture the 80s and capture the popularity of US popular culture and black culture in particular during this time, and kind of view it through the lens of someone like Kim Bass, who was there to, you know, discover himself and discover his passions and just have, have a great time. So that was a really fun chapter to write. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you have, please support this labor of love because it is labor nonetheless. You can support this solo indie podcast by becoming a member of the Flourish in the Foreign Buy Me a Coffee membership, where you can subscribe to support the podcast on a monthly basis. You can also give one-time support via Buy Me a Coffee as well. And you can do either one at buymeacoffee.com slash flourishforeign. Support this podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you listen to the podcast. And if you listen on Spotify, you can also leave comments on each episode and even answer some of the poll questions I've created for certain episodes. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and family and even the colleagues you kind of like. This podcast continues to exist and thrive due to listeners like you. Thank you so much for your continued support. Now, 
back to the episode. Your chapter on Philippa was, it made me so uncomfortable. It made me so uncomfortable. And I, I was trying to figure out why. And I think I, I know. I feel that there's this conversation, this overarching theme of Black excellence. And this is what Black excellence is. But a little bit of like tragic mulatto thing kind of going on about her life that I felt was kind of disturbing. Her parents seemed loving, adoring, and her time abroad was prestigious, amazing. She's acclaimed. But there's something about her story that just uh, was, I mean, she did have an untimely death, but there's something about her story that was just so disturbing. And I'm wondering, how did you feel (laughs) about her story in general? And why did you feel that you should include her story in this book? So I write about Philippa Schuyler in the 1960s, but in the process of talking about her, I set her in Vietnam during the era of the Vietnam War. And to kind of get to the point that she arrives in Vietnam, I spent a lot of time talking about her early life. And she was born in the early 1930s to a Black father and a white mother both of whom were very good at crafting media narratives. Her father was a newspaper man. Her mother was a writer. And both of them really understood how to sell a story. And they were able to sell their love story and the story of Philippa to lots of publications, the Black press, the mainstream press. And they started out by talking about Philippa as They were careful not to call her a child prodigy, but they talked about her as a young child of prodigious talents, who was skilled at the piano, skilled at foreign languages, skilled at memorization, and they just were very proud of her talents. They also chose to hold her up as a model of what was possible through good parenting. They're very self-conscious of being an interracial couple in 1930s New York. And they were very aware of the kinds of critiques that were happening, especially in white circles about children of interracial unions being Mm -hmm. destined for failure, whether that was social failure, personal failure. um, And there were people who assumed that they might fail in intellectual ways as well. And so they wanted to set her up for success and set her up to to shine as an example of what was possible with devoted parents, right? And so they weren't using terms like black excellence. And I think they were really proud of their example as parents that they, and they, they said, this is, they said as much when they were doing interviews with the press where they're like, she's not a prodigy. We've just taken the trouble to, to raise her and to attend to her needs and to nurture her talents. And so what they were also trying to do was kind of serve as a model and hold Philippa up as a model for readers and for black families, for white families, and for other young children. And so she ends up having a childhood that doesn't fully belong to her. Like she, you know, she seemed like a happy child in interviews that they had organized for her. And she was a really chatty, Mm -hmm. precocious child, but her parents were very self-aware and they made sure that 
whatever chance they got, they could kind of hold her up as a model for people. So even for her birthday parties, they would orchestrate these sort of press events. And there was one birthday party where they invited children at a, an orphanage for Black children to come and attend her birthday party. And really, it's about Philippa yeah. kind of modeling possibilities of a, a happy, thriving, you know, young life for these kids. But it's a weird thing both for Philippa to have her birthday parties be these kind of press events. She didn't seem to have very many friends of her own. And it was a weird thing for the young girls at the orphanage to be kind of thrust into this spotlight that they didn't ask for that wasn't really about them. It was about Philippa. And to the extent it was even about Philippa, it was more about her, her parents. And so she's a complicated person. And part of what interested me in her story was all that, like her parents and just how self-aware they were and how savvy they were when it came to courting media attention for their kid. But the other thing that attracted me to her story is that finally, when she's about 13 or 14, she gets to do a bit of independent travel and she goes to Mexico. And I'll pause for a bit to mention another aspect of the book, which is that I weave my own travel experiences in between these narrative chapters that go decade by decade over the course of the 20th and 21st century. And I talk about my own grandparents who were born in the 1920s in Alabama, and my grandfather who joins the military and ends up going to Austria. He, after World War II, was stationed in Austria for three years. And my grandmother and my two oldest aunts and uncles end up going with them. And two other uncles were born in Austria during that time. And then I talk about going Growing up in Colorado, after my grandfather was eventually stationed in Colorado Springs, I was born in Colorado Springs and raised in Denver. And I talk about, you know, my own experiences of kind of isolation in this majority white state and going to private schools were further isolated, especially as a scholarship kid in these environments that were not made for me and not entirely welcoming to me. And I was looking to travel as a way out, in part because I attended schools that had travel programs, one of which I didn't get to participate in, but another one I did get to participate in finally in high school. When I was around Philippa's age, I went to Mexico and Philippa also goes to Mexico. And so what I really connected to was her experience of kind of traveling independently, like certainly by the time she goes to Mexico, she had been all over the world, but mostly with her parents. And she goes to Mexico and her mom is there, but like giving her more independence. And eventually Philippa will start to travel entirely by herself and just have these incredibly cool and harrowing and fun and romantic experiences. And I just wanted to kind of inhabit the perspective of someone like Philippa who had been put in all these different boxes and expected to live for other people. A lot of that really resonated with me even though I didn't have the same family background as her. And we were separated by decades in terms of when she was born and when I was born. So there was a lot about us that was different, but there was some kind of core aspect of her experience, especially the age at which she's traveling to Mexico and the age at which I traveled to Mexico that I really wanted to, to linger on and think about kind of what it meant for her to finally, at least as far as my research was indicating to kind of feel get to feel like an American. She goes to Mexico and she ends up writing a story for a girls magazine that was based in the US about her time in Mexico. And she's basically like interviewing these young Mexican girls that she meets 
about what it's like to be Mexican and they see her as American. So they're like, what's it like to be an American girl? And they're like, it must be amazing. And she's very kind of cautious in terms of how she responds to them and how she writes about it in this publication, which is targeting um, mostly white readers. And it's not entirely clear whether the readership even understands that Philippa is biracial. And so she's navigating this interesting kind of line and yet she's being seen for the first time as, as American, not as, you know, and the, for the first time as an individual, not as her, you know, parents, daughter and project, not as this kind of credit to her race, because in the U.S. she's understood to be black, right? She doesn't have to kind of submit to any particular pressure. She is just kind of allowed to be a teenage girl. And so I thought that was a really neat thing to examine in her early life and to think about how that shaped her as she grew up and continued to travel the world as a piano player and developed a degree of sophistication that clearly was kind of central to, to who she was and how she moved through the world. Ebony Magazine consulted her at one point, it turns out shortly before her death, in an article that appeared shortly after her death about certain etiquette when it came to travel abroad. And so she just was a really kind of cosmopolitan figure at an early age. And, you know, the tragedy of her life is that she died before we could really see what else lay in store for her. She spent all of her life traveling as a piano player, but she had all of these other talents. She had really interesting interactions with people and relationships with people. She wrote a book. She would write travel stories occasionally. And at the time of her death, she was working as a correspondent um, for a New Hampshire based publication, writing about the Vietnam War effort. And that's ultimately what leads to her, her death getting involved in the war effort. So she just was such a fascinating person. And certainly there is tragedy throughout her life. And the story of her life ultimately ends in tragedy and tragedy for her whole family, ultimately. And that's also what was interesting about it, just the the story from start to finish from her earliest years to the very end. And she's someone about whom there is quite a lot of documentation. And so I could have written an entire book about her and an entire book has been written about her and by her. So she's someone there's a lot to say about, but I felt like the, the travel component and the early travel experiences and her experiences of solo travel and the self-determination mm-hmm. that was kind of at the heart of it, I thought was really, really exceptional and worth probing. I mean, she is impressive. I think her childhood and her parents just disturbed me. There was something about yeah. that, that obviously she had to have poise and maturity, mm-hmm. which is not something that is only for adults, but it just felt like, let the girl breathe and let mm-hmm. her have some friends. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when she's in these positions to write these articles in Mexico, which I think is so lovely, I just felt because her parents were so media savvy, how much of this is really her voice and her desire. And I think that's what disturbed me the most about her. But there's something that happens to her that I think is, I'd love to chat with you about because I think it it runs through the book, which is Philippa is biracial and I think she's in Aruba and she's walking, minding her business mm-hmm. as we Black people often do. Yeah. <laughs> and she is mistaken as a Venezuelan woman and kidnapped 
by some white Americans Mm -hmm. who thought they could just kidnap a Venezuelan woman and rape her or whatever. Mm -hmm. And when they discover that she is not, they're like, oh, we'll return. And I think this intrusion of white Americans is very interesting. So I think it it happens over and over (laughs) again. And I do call it an intrusion because you showcase people in other white spaces, but there is something very particular about the white American intrusion. You had mentioned in Russia, the men were at a barber shop getting their hair cut. It was fine until some white Americans were like, I can't be aroused black people. And people were like, what are you talking about? And it's a, it's a constant in, in Austria about, you know, having segregated military and who can associate with who. And it's something that I'm so glad that you discussed because it still occurs, this white American intrusion. And I'm wondering, I guess, what is your reflections on that as you see it literally from the 20s, white Americans coming to France all the way throughout the book? Thanks for bringing that up. And I like the way you put it, that it's an intrusion because it very much was for people who were attempting to escape racism in the United States to encounter it as far away as Moscow in the form of their supposed fellow countrymen, right? These white Americans who clearly want certain things to travel with them, right? They want their own racial norms to travel with them. They want Jim Crow to travel with them. And they they kind of lose their minds when they when it doesn't, right? And when other norms prevail. So the case that you make reference to is at this hotel barber shop in Moscow when Joseph Rowan, after this weeks long journey to Russia, finds himself in need of a haircut. And he's kind of sheepish when he goes to the front desk of the hotel to say as much because he's like, you know, I know I can't go here. And, you know, perhaps, you know, someone who is willing to, you know, take my money and treat me to a haircut. And the staff at the hotel are like, what are you talking about? Of course you go here. There's a barbershop right off the lobby. It's here for hotel guests and you're a hotel guest. And so he and one of his travel companions go into this barbershop and, you know, they're trying to be serviced by the barbers in the shop and everything is going well until these white American men kind of hear these American accents and see these black men and want them kicked out. And the nice ending to that story is that it's the white men who get kicked out, but it's a story that repeats itself. There's another episode I don't include in the book, but there was a travel correspondent who I make reference to in the book, who is kind of a Europe-based travel correspondent named Ollie Stewart, who mentions an instance where some friends of his are traveling in Paris and they find a really disturbing sign in the, the hallway of the hotel and the sign reads, no Mexicans, no dogs, no N-words allowed. And it turns out it was a sign that had been put up by white guests from the United States who couldn't countenance the fact that this hotel was welcoming to African-Americans, among others, perhaps there were also some Mexican-American guests in the hotel. And so they wanted to impose their own norms and they put the sign up and eventually the hotel staff, after the black guests complained about it, took the sign down. They took it down overnight so you can tell that the hotel staff was trying to walk a line between not offending the black guests, but also bending a bit to the, the will of these white guests. 
And so it's a story about the expectations that white Americans have when they travel. And I think that's a story that, you know, should stand on its own too. It's not just a story about what happens to black people when they travel. It's a story about what white people assume the world owes them when they travel. Right. And so it's part of the story of African-Americans going abroad, but it's a story that's by and large about white Americans going abroad. But yes, like you said, it comes up at various points and persists into the, the present day, you know? And I think that's, that's part of the, the story of being African-American that even when you're far from home and you might hear a familiar accent, that doesn't mean that you're among familiar people or, or friends, right? Just because they're your fellow countrymen doesn't mean that they're, they're friends or have your best interests at heart. And in fact, they might be upset by your very presence and more than that, upset and offended that you're being treated like a human being because they thought that, especially in the Jim Crow era, but it's even true now that you were, you were a second-class citizen, even in other parts of the world. It is. It is. It's something that you discuss in the book. It's something that my guests have stated many, many times. It's something that was surprising to me when I first encountered it, feeling the most American outside the United States. But that Americanness being questioned when white Americans enter the space. As recent as this past February, I don't typically have a lot of white American friends uh, abroad. <laughs> I went to a party and there were white Americans there, which was strange. It was one of those things I was like, huh. And they were very perplexed as to what I was doing in Spain. And I was like, I live here. I've lived here for six years. And they're like, well, how do you, like, what's your visa and all these other things, which is immigration talk is very personal. So I was like, mind your business. Don't worry yeah, about how I say party it. Talk. It's legal. Okay. <laughs> But they were just like, what are you doing here? What's your visa status? And then they were like, they all knew each other from a co-working space, but I make friends everywhere I go. So they were just like, how is it that you know all these people that we know, but we don't know you? And it's this thing about the tone and attitude that I'm like, all these other people are just like, hello, how are you? They may be like, yes, you are a black woman. But this immediate interrogation, mm-hmm. I've only experienced with white Americans. Mm-hmm. And it's why I don't hang out with Americans. <laughs> uh, it's just really unsettling. And there's always a conversation with them. They're like, oh, but I've traveled to India because they're always so yeah. cultural. They always know things and they always like to, yeah. oh, well, I'm not like, you know, all the other Americans. And I'm like, but you are. But you are. You've just been places. You you use your passport. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And ultimately, that that's a story about them, right? It's a story that obviously infringes on Black people's experience and enjoyment of these these places. But it's it's about them and their their expectations of what the world owes them, and often at the expense of other people, right? I want to chat about your story because I resonated so deeply with your story of wanting to see the world and not being able to and being, well, what the heck is this about? <laughs> what do you mean? I'm the one that wants to see the world. They don't care. So as you mentioned in the book, like 
living in Colorado, understanding how your family migrated, which you also say it wasn't, we moved from the South to Colorado. My family moved all around the world and came back and went back around and then ended up in Colorado, a place where not a lot of people associate Black people being in Colorado. (laughs) And you're going to this private school and you have this excellent education, but these experiences are off limits due to the cost. And and I, my heart broke when you understood, like, I can't take this trip to Russia. I'm so excited. I'm attentive in class and I won't be able to go. But you came back for Mexico and you were like, I got to talk to the headmaster because this is some BS. How is it that this is part of an educational program, but it's off limits to everyone? And I just was like, yes, yes, you go, go. Um, and as you're as you include in, in the book, really starting to understand your grandparents' history and how that made you feel and reflect differently about stories or even yourself and possibilities, your time in Argentina, which I have to say, I've interviewed a lot of people who studied abroad in Argentina, and they've had similar experiences as well. So Argentina. And then to you moving to Canada. And I love what you said about Canada because I think it's so true. People are like, one, people not believing that you moved to Canada for a career, which is so annoying. I think one of the most annoying things about Black migration is that I think in the mainstream media, there's always this centering of the white gaze, meaning like you must be leaving because of racism. Mm -hmm. Is racism or anti-Blackness part of the equation? I think so. But you were like, no, I want it. It's a career move. I'm wanting to move. Black people, Black women move abroad for love, for career, on a whim. There's other things going on. So I love that. But also, you were in the movie theater. And I that feeling of tension and conflictedness, I've also felt. I've felt so much. So I just loved your story. And I loved, you know, coming to the end of, you know, one profile and getting to dip, dip into your family, into your own personal story. So I love that. So I was, I was hoping that you could briefly reflect, because everyone can read it, buy the book, everyone, and read it and be enamored like I am. But I'm wondering if you could just reflect on your your time abroad and how that has not only connected to you even deeper with your grandparents and your family, but how has that just made you evolve? It really is at the core of why I wrote the book, my own experiences of travel. And it's at the core of who I am today because I wouldn't have the job that I have, the the life that I have had I not gotten finally to travel to Mexico when I was in high school. I kind of like to joke, but I'm not really joking, (laughs) that not getting to go to Russia is my villain origin story, because it really was the thing that kind of sparked a drive in me and a a fire in me. I was so resentful that the only thing that kept me from being able to take this trip, which in many ways is a once in a lifetime trip, because I can't imagine going to Russia today. I can't imagine it. And unfortunately, I'd gotten a grant to go and that was before it decided to, to wage war on Ukraine. And now it's all but impossible to go. And, you know, it also kidnaps the U.S. citizens. So there's lots of reasons not to not to go to Russia. But the only thing that separated me in that experience was 
$5,000 um, in 90s money, which is an insane amount of money. And my family didn't have it. And this was a school that that knew that, that, you know, accepted students on scholarship, but excluded them from opportunities that other families were able to, to take advantage of. And it was something that, you know, really, really shaped me in more ways than one, both in terms of just shaping my own drive to, to travel and getting to go to Mexico and later to France and to Argentina when I studied abroad. But it also shaped my desire to found a nonprofit called The Wandering Scholar, which is designed to provide students like myself opportunities to travel abroad. And we provide not only financial support, but programming for those students. We call it a fellowship. It's for high school students in part because we want them to feel like they're bringing something to the experience. They're not just receiving scholarships. They're also bringing knowledge and preparation and resilience given their own backgrounds and cross-cultural competencies given their own backgrounds and experiences that they're bringing really valuable traits to the study abroad experience that will not only benefit the fellow American high school students that they're traveling with, but will benefit the interactions that they have with people from the host countries that they visit, that the best diplomats that we have are those kinds of high school students. And so that experience really was formative. And then by getting to go to Mexico, I nourished a love for the Spanish language and for Latin America that has shaped the course of my life where I majored in Spanish when I was in undergrad, majored in history, studied abroad in Argentina. By virtue of having such a difficult experience in Argentina, I decided to become a historian of eventually a historian of slavery in Latin America, in part to understand anti-Blackness in present day Latin America. I wanted to understand the history of slavery. I ended up working on Peru, but my research is now taking me back to Argentina. You know, after that, I went to graduate school and I had a Fulbright in Peru. And one of the things I remember realizing when I was in Peru is how essential those experiences had been to putting me in that place, especially with that particular fellowship. I remember being at a dinner that had been organized by the Fulbright Commission that brought together people from all over the Andean region who had Fulbrights. And so I'm in this room with people from all over the US who had been scattered all over South America and I was the only black person and I happened to be seated next to a representative of the Fulbright organization and asked what was going on. And I re remember finding the answer a bit oversimplified and mm -hmm. they didn't, you know, recognize their own limits of perspective because one of the things the person said was that the problem was that a lot of the projects that were being proposed weren't necessarily feasible. That's such a subjective judgment, especially when it comes to exploring issues like race and identity in Latin America, which have only recently gotten the kind of attention they deserve. Those are often the kinds of projects, myself included, that Black applicants are interested in for good reason. And they bring a perspective that is tremendously valuable to carrying out that kind of research. So I took issue with part of what they were saying, but ultimately they were pointing out a pipeline problem, that there were a lot of applicants who didn't have the travel experiences and didn't have the language skills to instill confidence that they could carry out the research. And I had had all these travel experiences and years of studying Spanish to be able to make the case for myself that you could give me a Fulbright and I would hit the ground running. And so that was the reason also for founding the Wandering Scholar to give 
students like I had once been opportunities to get to those points and to change the course of their own lives because people often don't know what they want to do with their lives. And if there are only kind of certain models that they've seen in life and, you know, my models, my models of professional life were doctor, lawyer, teacher, and I am a, a kind of teacher as a professor, but that wasn't what I envisioned when I went to college. I knew I, I would have professors. I didn't really understand what their jobs were, how they got them. But all that to say that, you know, so often students have such limited visions because they live in worlds that limit their, their visions. And so the experience of travel really opens up your sense of what's possible in, in your own life and the future course of your life. And so we just, as an organization, been able to open up possibilities for for students just as travel had opened up so many possibilities for me and for so many of the people I write about in the book who would have had completely different life outcomes had they not had these opportunities to, to leave the country and discover different sides of themselves and what they were capable of. Yes. And we didn't even touch all of the people that you profile who are are so fascinating and not just fascinating because of they went abroad, but what they did with that time and how they impacted so many people, which I just have to commend you and your nonprofit because I've interviewed women who've had the chance to study abroad in high school, do exchanges for a year. And they're like, after you realize what is possible for you, the genie is out the bottle, like you can't do anything. And it's, Mm-hmm. It's such an amazing um, opportunity. So I commend you. And I, if you need or want any help, or if I can be of any assistance, please do let me know. Actually, can I respond to that really quickly? I think yeah. you and your your listeners might find this really interesting. One of the things that we do is pair our students with travel mentors who have had experiences of travel at similar ages, who currently kind of inhabit the vision that we have for our students, which is to be engaged citizens of a global community. And so that's absolutely one way that, and you and I will talk about that for sure, but for other folks who are listening who might be interested, like we are always looking for travel mentors to pair with our students who can be not only short-term mentors, but kind of lifetime models for our students of what being part of the world looks like because they don't always get to see that and people who look like them and that's it's so crucial to just their own self-image but also to their their life paths and to the places in the world that we all go especially as black women because there are so many assumptions about who we are thanks to popular culture thanks to anti-blackness misogynoir all these things that end up shaping perceptions of Black women that we don't have any control over. And so I think there's just so much power in us moving through the world at different life stages, at different ages, in different forms and bodies. And it's just a really beautiful part of the work that we do to create these relationships where our students can see their own futures in the form of these travel mentors. And I would be happy to connect you with all of my past guests, because the crazy thing is, you know, when I'll tell you guys briefly, briefly. It's not about me, but briefly. I knew I wanted to live abroad since I was 17 years old. And I think that's in part because my father's an immigrant from Trinidad who immigrated uh, to New York. I always tell people my mother's Black American, but I come from a small nomadic tribe of women who had no problem picking up sticks and being like, 
we mm-hmm. out, we're doing something else. Mm-hmm. My dad was stationed in Germany for a time. And so I'd come and visit him when I was like 10 years old. And that was unheard of. People were like, you got a passport? And I was traveling solo. And I was like, wow. aren't you afraid? And I was like, no, I'm not afraid of any. No, I, Lufthansa treats me amazingly well. Like being an unhurried <laughs> minor was like amazing. Uh-huh. And so when I... When I end up being 17, I was like, okay, I want to study abroad. I go to college. There's no trying to recruit me. I'm like, I'm studying abroad. I don't care. I'm going to make it happen. And at first it was like, I don't care where I go. And I was like, oh, it needs to be in alignment with my major in my credits because I have taken out a loan and I need to actually graduate with this uh, degree on time. I end up 16 years ago studying abroad here in Valencia, Spain. And actually the dorm where I stayed is like less than a kilometer away from my house. It's probably like 500 meters. Oh my goodness. And it is, one, the city is so different. Now it's like a tourist place. Before it was not. It was a little bit Mm. rougher around the edges, especially (laughs) in the city center. But my experience abroad was not like amazing. Like it wasn't Emily in Paris. Okay. Like people are like black woman stare. Where are you? Like (laughs) I didn't have anything traumatic or crazy, but it wasn't romantic or whatever. But I realized that I could do it. And I also realized like y'all get used to me and I'm going to move around the world and I'm going to move and I'm going to do what I want to do. So something like that experience changes something in your brain because it took me a while to actually move abroad. I was 30 years old when I moved abroad. But even before that, on a whim, a dramatic, very emotional whim, like two years or three years before I even moved abroad, I decided to walk the Camino de Santiago, which is a pilgrimage wow. across Spain, on a whim. That's a wow. long story. But like, That's quite had I whim. not studied abroad, I don't know if I would have had the, I don't even know, courage or just the ability to be like, I could figure it out. I could do this. And so it yeah. is so, so important. I will do whatever I can do to support you. Anyone listening, if you are interested, we're obviously going to put the website and any contact information. But these things are not like, mm, I know study abroad gets this reputation of being like a slack off year or it's only for rich people. And maybe some people do experience that. But mm-hmm. I think that the experience is second to none if it can be available. It changes how you think. If anything, I think I've become more skeptical too. I was like, yeah, 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 that's what y'all are saying. But I actually went abroad. Like I have a different yeah. understanding, especially of like media literacy is yeah. a big thing too. So I have been toying with this concept throughout the making and growing of Flourish of Foreign, which is living abroad as a pathway to wellness particularly Mm. for Black people, Black women. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of respond to that, either with your personal experiences, your familial experiences, or from some of the people you've researched. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting just going back to the example of Kim Bass, because he, there are two things I think often about from our interview. One was just his discipline when it came to this regular commitment to practicing Taekwondo, but you could insert really anything in that, just this commitment to himself that he made every day and and lived up to every day. The other thing that I thought was interesting was how when he first went to Tokyo, so he first went to Tokyo, it was 
similar to your experience. When he was an undergrad, he did a summer program and he was struck by what breakfast was like in Tokyo because it was savory. So it was rice, it was fish, it was some sort of broth or miso soup. And he couldn't wrap his head around that coming from the U.S. and certainly in the 70s where he was, you know, eating cereal for breakfast or, you know, things of that sort. So the idea of a a savory breakfast really kind of challenged him. And that's a small thing, but I think it just points to some of the things that come out of study abroad. And even for these short, shorter term experiences, like a summer or a couple of weeks or even a week, just learning different ways to to spend your day, right? And different ways to start your day. And he was able to make this switch from a conventional cereal focused or sugar focused breakfast that he had in the US to one that was savory and served him better actually when he was going from breakfast to taekwondo. It nourished his body in a, a different way that he was able to to notice. So I think those are really small, interesting things that come out of traveling although you don't even have to travel to get that just learning different ways of life and the media we consume the pop culture we consume i think that is something that we see a lot in tv shows i have a really good friend that watches a lot of k dramas and always talks about the food ways on k dramas because food is so central to so many of those shows i also think about my own experience of living in toronto for 5 years where health insurance is really considered a human right. And it's not tied to employment. Everyone has it. My job happened to give us the bonus of a massage benefit, which meant that every month I was able to get a massage from my job free of charge with registered massage therapists. And it made a world of difference in my sense of wellness and balance and and calm. And that wasn't something that was considered an indulgence, right? I think so often in the US, because life is so difficult and made so difficult, things that are essential to just our well-being and alignment in more ways than one, both literal and metaphorical, are considered indulgences. And I think what has really been true for me since I've been back in the US is that I've wanted to think more about wellness as integral and not as an indulgence. It's so easy to feel guilty and be made to feel guilty about certain things that, you know, we do in our lives to to bring us balance and calm and relaxation. But because I had spent five years getting regular massages, I've just chosen to think of those things as part of my wellness routine and tried to do more in the way of of meditation and, and mindfulness to really stay connected to myself, my goals, my body, and to really just honor that as much as possible. Because it's so essential to overall well-being and productivity, right? The things that kind of keep us alive in terms of attending to our material needs, right? Like I, I can't do a good job at my, my job if I'm not in better physical and mental alignment. So I've been trying more, just having moved back to the U.S. and Canada to bring some of those things that were so baked into my life and not considered optional add-ons, but just kind of incorporated into how I lived my life. And I've been trying to bring more of that into my my life. And I'm also in a 
position in my life at a stage in my career where I can do those things. But that's also, I think, the crime of the U.S. that we kind of require people to have earned their way into wellness. And I think that's that's really ugly. And I think it doesn't serve people. And we've made living a calm, comfortable life a luxury. But I still think there are, are ways to carve out a little bit. And I've been just a- attending to that now that I'm, I'm back in the United States. But I know it's, it's certainly easier for me than it is for a lot of people. And it's certainly easier in other parts of the world than it is in the US. And so I, I love that idea that, you know, and I hate it at the same time, right? <laughs> that leaving the US <laughs> is, is a path to wellness, right? And it's kind of connected to the point I make in the book that, you know, leaving the US is often the only way that African Americans have been able to feel American. Something's wrong with that. So it's yes and right. Yes, that is such a an interesting and integral part of, of traveling abroad. But it should also be a part of being in the US. Like you shouldn't have to leave for these fundamental things. And yet here we are. Your book, Beyond the Shores, a history of African Americans abroad, exemplify that. I mean living abroad, professional wellness, financial wellness, emotional wellness. It is really an amazing book. I have to tell everyone, you have to get this book. I really do believe that. If you listen to this podcast, you will not be disappointed because this book is, it's not just inspirational, but it really is just so affirming. It's so affirming. And I always tell everyone, it's not about, you know, being abroad. It's not about moving abroad. It's about thriving abroad. And I just think that there are so many lessons to be learned about these stories, about pivoting, about coming back home, about so many different things. So just thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for writing this book. I just really adore it. Where can everyone connect with you and learn more about your nonprofit? So the nonprofit is called The Wandering Scholar, and it can be found at thewanderingscholar.org. We're also on Instagram at Wandering Scholar. I have a personal website, tamarajwalker.com, and I have a burgeoning Instagram that I have been getting off the ground called Histories of Travel, where I am attempting to lean into this exploration of travel across time by spotlighting individuals. I can't make any big promises about it right now, but it is a place that I'm increasingly devoting attention to exploring as someone who's not typically on social media, but that is a place to, to find some of my work, if not my, myself and my, my own story. Big thanks again to Tamara J. Walker and to Penny and everybody at Random House and Crown Publishing. Thank you so much for your patience, for all the drama that happened in the background. I appreciate y'all. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about this guest, please check out their show notes page at Flourish in the Foreign dot com slash episodes. If you would like to be a guest or know of someone who would be an interesting guest on the podcast, please fill out the guest inquiry form located on the website under the contact tab. That's flourishintheforeign.com slash contact.
I will be doing another Ask Me Anything episode at the end of the season, so be sure to please submit your questions via the link in the description of this episode. Stay up to date with everything that is happening with me and the podcast by subscribing to the Flourish in the Foreign newsletter. You can subscribe to the newsletter via the link in the description of this episode or by going to the website flourishintheforeign.com. Be sure to check out the Flourish in the Foreign blog and the Flourish in the Foreign bookshop powered by bookshop.org, where you can support local bookstores and Flourish in the Foreign at the same time. Check out my list of books to help you move, live, and thrive abroad. Make sure that you are subscribed to the Flourish in the Foreign YouTube channel for when I drop new videos and follow the podcast on Instagram and TikTok at Flourish Foreign. You can also follow the podcast on LinkedIn at Flourish in the Foreign. And of course, subscribe to the podcast via whichever platform you listen on and leave a review. As always, Big thanks to Zachary Higgs for producing the music of this here podcast. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. It was a hard place to live. I was food deprived for two years. So I go to this clinic and it's outside. Outside in like a shack. And so I go into the bathroom. There's no toilet paper. There is no soap. Now... I'm freaking out at this point because I'm like, this is a medical facility. Like, how do I not catch something here? So I go upstairs, they put me on this machine, give me all of these tests, and then they tell me that I have a heart problem. So then of course, then I leave there in a bigger panic than when I got there. And so I go back to the doctor and he says, you don't have a heart problem. He said, I looked at the test. He was like, there's some irregularities. He said, but that could be caused by stress. He was like, tell me what's going on. So I tell him everything I just told you. Food deprived, I don't sleep well, the dogs and the cats are fighting at night, you know, all of these things. And my personal life is going to shit. (laughs) 